and welcome to Writing in Faith, a podcast about the Christian and writing life. I'm your host, Daniel Dynek, and this week we're talking about gender roles in Christianity and in the Bible, as always to see if there might be something we're missing, even just a slightly different understanding, so that choosing holiness might be easier. For writers, we're going to be focusing on just a few basics of writing the other, other genders, races, levels of ability or disability, and what amounts to simply good writing. Plenty of goodness in this episode coming right up. So for the update this week, as I mentioned, I think in a previous episode, you know, I tend to script these things a couple days before I actually sit down and record it. And so usually when I'm writing down the episode, I don't know what the update's going to be. And I'll be honest, right now I'm still not sure what the update is. I'm actually still kind of waiting to get back into writing book four. These podcasts, if you've noticed, the last episode was quite a bit longer than normal. This one is also turning out to be quite a bit longer than normal, where they used to be, you know, 18 minutes was a good amount. Now I'm getting into like the 30 minutes or a little bit more. Mostly the devotion part is what's getting longer. And I think that's going to end up being a good thing. I'm hoping that you guys are enjoying it for quite a while. I would say I've been kind of feeling like, you know, I get to the end of the devotion part and feel like I needed to spend more time developing some of the ideas that I was kind of bringing up. They were starting to feel kind of incomplete more often than not, I would say. So it's been really fun for me to spend a little bit more time looking at more verses, trying to cover more questions that might come up through doing these studies and things like that. So that's been taking quite a bit of an amount of time. And also, very recently, came into the opportunity of helping someone else get their book published on Amazon. And so that's been a lot of fun. It's kind of been really cool that, you know, everything I've gone through to this point, the struggles I've had with getting something on Amazon and being able to kind of figure it out or push through or whatever I needed to do to get it to be able to then turn around and you know this person is they're really passionate about this book they've written and you know taking quite a while to write it they started trying to publish it last year actually I think she said she's been working for you know over a year trying to get this thing up on Amazon keeps running into roadblocks and the last kind of email exchange we had she was getting really excited that this might be a reality again she kind of I don't know if she had written it off entirely or not, but just, you know, when you try something over and over again for a year and keep running into issues, it's very easy to kind of lose the motivation to keep going at it and think maybe you made a mistake. Again, I don't know that she has gone through all this stuff. I'm not, I'm just saying in general, you know, I can understand, you know, working on something for that long. And then finally someone or some piece of knowledge or whatever comes along and all of a sudden the dream is kind of reawakened. And so it's been really cool to be part of that. But both of those things um, have kind of been taking up quite a bit of time. Scripting the podcast, editing the podcast, and then I've been, you know, working on working to get her book published. And that's been really cool. But as I said, this one's going to be another kind of long one. So I'm just going to jump right in here. As I mentioned last week, I've been delaying this long enough. And here I go delaying it with this update more. What we're talking about today is gender roles and what the Bible says about it. And I wouldn't be surprised if this happened to you guys whenever I said I was going to be teaching gender roles, it's always fascinating and interesting when that topic comes up. Because as soon as a pastor, or maybe even when I said it, or probably really anyone even mentions that they're going to teach on this topic, more often than not, I can only imagine the first thoughts or even the words that come out of your mouth are, great, they're going to be talking about submission again and telling women how they should act. And some may respond, 
even to that response by saying, well, that's the big issue these days. Ever since the women's rights movement, all these women and feminists have been demanding authority over men, and they need to be reminded about what the Bible says about it. And what fascinates me about that reaction is that it kind of assumes that prior to the women's rights movement, everything was fine, which assumes then that women and men were both fulfilling their roles according to scripture. But if the hashtag MeToo movement should show us nothing else, it is that a lot of men were not and are not living biblically either. And it is equally or even more important to address them as it is women. For Christians, our submission to Christ's authority is not or should not be a burden. And if it is not, it is because of God's love for us and his grace and mercy toward us that helps us to live in a way pleasing to him, helps us even to want to live in a way pleasing to him. So I might say that if we're going to expect submission from our women, it falls to the man to create a space in which a woman will want to submit and will want to because of the man's love and grace, remembering our definition from last week, and mercy. But before we get too far ahead of ourselves... Let's take a look first at our inciting passage and see if we've erred in our expectations to begin with. Now, remember last week I mentioned that if we're going to question any theological concept or any passage of scripture or anything like that, our questions must first arise from scripture, not our own feelings or the culture's thoughts on the topic. So if there is no scripture that might call into question our assumption that women should submit to men, that they should be plainly dressed without fancy hair or makeup, if no such scripture exists, then we must be careful not to just assume such beliefs are wrong because society and culture believes it is wrong. Well, perhaps fortunately for women and perhaps unfortunately for men, though more on that in a minute, such a passage does exist. Galatians chapter 3 verses 26 through 29 says this, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, the broader context of this passage is Paul's reassertion to the Galatians, who were non-Jews, that salvation comes by faith and not by works salvation, and the inheritance of the promise made to Abraham. The Galatians of the time were being told that they needed to obey certain of the law given through Moses to the people of Israel. And Paul needed to write to them to remind them that no, as long as you believe, it will be credited to you as righteousness. Now, let's also stop to remember that in all of the epistles, we're only hearing one side of the conversation. Sometimes we're able to research and discover what was happening culturally from sources outside the Bible, and sometimes we're able to find some of that context in the book of Acts. But many times, word would have come to Paul or Peter or one of the other writers of these letters, and they would write a letter back responding to whatever issue they had heard about. Now, this is going to come up several times during this episode, so I wanted to make that clear. And so here, the fact that Paul is reminding the Galatians that they are all one in Christ, that there is no difference in inheritance between these various groups, indicates that some sort of heresy was going around. And as we said, at the very least, they were being told that they needed to follow some of the law of Moses in order to be saved. But the fact that Paul specifies there is neither male nor female indicates that part of that heresy might have had something to do with gender, that men and women were treated differently or needed to do different things, or in some way that the interactions between men, women, Christ, faith, works, grace, eternal life, something was different. And here Paul says, no, they are all one in Christ. 
So if we are all one in Christ, and there is no difference in the promise or the inheritance, why, we should ask, should the faith of men display itself differently than from women? We might say because they were created differently. But why do we think that? Aside from the obvious physical differences, but what in the Bible might indicate women should act differently from men or men from women? Probably a couple of verses or passages are leaping to your mind. Wives submitting to husbands, women not being permitted to teach, and that women are the weaker partner. So let's go ahead and start taking a look at these ideas. Everyone's favorite, he said as sarcastically as he could. Ephesians chapter 5 verses 22 through 33. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless." In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. A couple of key things from this entire passage that I think are sometimes overlooked, though most of it is also taught widely. First, wives submit yourselves to your own husbands. It does not say wives submit to husbands, and it really, really doesn't say women submit to men. It specifies that a wife is to submit to her own husband. I have zero authority over anyone else's wife based off this passage. In whatever capacity I may be serving as a teacher through this podcast, it is still up to an individual wife or woman whether or not she listens to me. And if she does, I hope it is because I speak the truth, not because I'm a man. Second thing, it says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. It does not say, husbands, force your wives into subjection. It is her choice, under grace and through Christ Jesus, if and how she is in relationship to her husband. Third, about this entire passage, Paul uses 62 words when describing how wives should be in relationship to their husbands, but he uses 117 words concerning how the husband should be in relationship to his wife. Sounds like maybe there was a greater issue even back then of men's improper and unscriptural relationship toward women. So let's look at the husbands for just a minute. First, the passage says, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Christ does not force us into his body or force us to obey him. We talked about that already. But as the head, and when we are in proper relationship with him, Christ's role is not dictator, but director to say to the members, do this or that thing, so that the kingdom of God may spread and all may come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. To that end, he supplies us with gifts and talents and the grace to perform each in a way pleasing to God. Husbands, as the head then, are not dictator, but director, doing everything they can to free their wives from any hindrances to a pursuit of life in Christ. Because what does it say about Christ in the church? Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, 
cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. The purpose of being the head and loving the wife is to make her holy, radiant, unblemished, blameless. No human being, when oppressed by a dictatorial relationship, with their gifts and talents squashed underfoot for the sake of being demure, is very radiant. Speaking of gifts and talents, let's make a little note here that, when describing the gifts of the Spirit, no teacher or apostle in Scripture differentiates between gender, saying, women are given these gifts and men are given these gifts. In fact, I find very little in Scripture that differentiates the actual activities undertaken by men or women, saying men are to do these sorts of things and women are to do these sorts of things. The majority of the distinctions only come when we start discussing married couples. Some more on that in a little bit. Third, in this passage for the men. Husbands should live their lives as Christ did, giving themselves up for their wives. Let's note here that Jesus' life was more than just dying on the cross. Everyone dies, right? Except for Enoch and Elijah. Just the fact that Jesus died does not make him special. The fact he died sinless and was resurrected and is, you know, the son of God is what makes him special. But it was not just in his dying and being resurrected that he left us an example. It was in how he lived his ministry here on earth. We follow Christ in how he lived and acted, and we see him almost tirelessly serving others, teaching, healing, and generally all around spending time with the sick, lame, downtrodden, sinful. The main point being, he gave of himself for three years before he finally gave himself to the last measure. Husbands, our giving up of ourselves to our wives is a daily thing, and it is an ignoring of our own desires, being hungry, tired, wanting to watch a football game, or in my case, a mountain bike race, for the benefit of our wives, to learn and grow in the knowledge of Christ and submission to his will. Nothing in this passage indicates wives are to submit to their husbands, or husbands should be an authority over their wives for their own end. For it says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother, and be united to his wife, and the two become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. The relationship of the husband and wife is to be an image of Christ and the church, and that is why there are roles for each to play, not because of gender, but because of God, and his desire to provide living examples of his relationship between himself and man. So, husbands and wives, whenever you look to how your relationship should appear to outsiders, consider first what it will say about the relationship between Christ and the church. If that aligns with scripture, I think you will do well. Let's take a moment to pause here too, because in everything I've just said, it can sound like whether or not the wife becomes holy and blameless and pure is solely on how the man acts, and that is not true. We are going to see this a little bit later on in a passage from, I think it's First Peter, but I just want to clarify that now before you get upset. There are responsibilities we have as a man or as a woman to grow in our relationship with Christ regardless of our spouse. So let's leave that there for now, and let's move on. So from this passage that we just read in, from Ephesians, we see no indication that women should be subject to men, but rather wives to husbands. And essentially, through the sacrifice that Christ displays, husbands submit to a degree to their wives, though more specifically, husbands submit to the goal of their holiness, radiance, lack of blemish, and blamelessness. What then about the fact that Paul doesn't permit women to teach? Let's go ahead and take a look at that verse then. 
This comes from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Once again, let's take a look at a couple things. First, this letter was written from Paul to Timothy, who was a pastor at the time, a leader of a church. So much of this letter and the second was instructing Timothy on how to run a church. It was not simply general instruction on the nature of life in Christ. So in this, one end of the conversation that we don't really see except by what we can infer is Timothy writing to Paul and describing various issues he was having in leading his church. Based on that, then, the second thing, and this is fairly widely taught, the other end of the conversation, as it were, was that men and women often sat apart during teachings. And women, who at that time were generally denied education, would be calling across to their husbands to clarify a point. This naturally created a certain amount of distraction and disruption. It is possible, maybe even likely, that Timothy had written to Paul about this distraction and wondered if there was a better way. So first, Paul says, in essence, I've run into that problem too, so I instruct women to learn in quietness and full submission. We can see more of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 34 and 35, where he goes further to say that if women have any questions, they should ask their husbands at home. Again, the context of the Corinthians verse is concerning orderly worship in the meetings. So then we come to the contentious part of the Timothy passage, where Paul instructs women not to teach or to be an authority over man. Now, it is very easy to take our assumptions and predispositions apply them to this English translation at face value, and run with it. But as we've seen so far, perhaps our assumptions about gender roles is skewed, so let's be a little more careful and look at the Greek. Now, I want to reiterate in this episode that I am not a Greek scholar, but there are several things I've learned. First, ancient Greek is notorious for the number of inflections that different verbs and nouns have, where English tends to have two, singular and plural, as well as tenses, past, present, and future, Greek sometimes had over a hundred, and certainly dozens, based on gender, number, whether it was the subject or the object in the sentence, and generally depending on many of the words around it and what context it was in. I don't know all of those forms or how we translate them. What I do have, as I mentioned last week, is blueletterbible.org. According to its translation services, it tells me that the Greek word that is here translated woman, I do not permit a woman to teach, is translated 129 times in the New Testament as woman and 92 times as wife. The root word, when we look up the Greek definition, can indeed refer to a woman generally or a woman who is betrothed, married, or widowed. What the website also gives me is the actual text of the original Greek. So I can look at the letters or the symbols of the word and compare them. Interestingly enough, many of the times that the word is elsewhere translated as woman does not have the exact same letters or symbols as the word in this passage. The root word is the same, but they are clearly not the same word specifically. Now, as I said, this isn't necessarily significant, given the numerous inflections of Greek words. What is interesting, though, is that in Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 and 5, when Jesus says about the creation of the world, "'Haven't you read,' he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Here, the word translated wife does exactly match the word translated as woman in 1 Timothy. Given the similarity of the Timothy passage to the 1 Corinthians passage, where Paul goes on to say that women should ask their husbands, indicating he's talking specifically about married women, 
It is possible that Paul's actual instruction is that he does not permit a wife to teach or, and our third point, to be an authority over her husband. Now, you may say this doesn't matter since most of the women pastors we have issues with are wives and therefore this instruction still applies. So let's continue looking at some Greek. The word, and it's actually a phrase, translated as be an authority, interestingly, the King James Version says to usurp authority, is a word with several fascinating definitions. One who with his own hands kills another or himself is the original meaning according to Vine's Expository Dictionary. It also can mean one who acts in his own authority, an absolute master, and to govern, exercise dominion over one. So Paul does not permit a woman or possibly wife to teach or to usurp authority, to kill, act in authority, be absolute master, or exercise dominion. Doesn't that seem like an odd pairing? Don't let them teach, oh, and also don't let them dominate men or their husbands. I think we can safely say that teaching does not inherently put one in authority, mastery, or dominion, as I've already said about myself in whatever capacity I teach through this podcast. So what is it then about teaching? Let's read further in verses 13 and 14. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Oh, so it sounds like there's something creationally wrong with women. They are more easily deceived because they were formed second, or something. Verse 15, But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Okay, so salvation for men is through faith. For women, it is through childbearing? Maybe that's why Christian women these days are so eager to have kids? Or maybe there's something more going on here. And indeed, there is. Another heresy, or several, to which Paul was responding, saying that Eve came first, perhaps even gave birth to Adam, and Adam was the one deceived by the serpent. Because you might also glean from this that Adam was faultless, a point that Paul does not make, and in fact, when talking about through the sin of one man in Romans 5, completely excludes any mention of Eve in regards to sin entering the world. So it's interesting then to me that Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or be an authority for Adam was created first and it was Eve who was deceived. The two things are connected and have some sort of causal relationship. What we might understand from this then is that the women of the church and of the world learning from the church would be particularly interested to learn that Eve was faultless and women should be in authority over men because, according to another form of the heresy, Eve was the one who taught Adam. In essence, then, we come back to the idea that this is an image of the relationship between husbands and wives and Christ and the church. And what we model in our relationships to our wives and wives to our husbands must reflect to the world the relationship between Christ and the church, not because of some inherent greater fallibility of women versus men. But you may be saying, if you're really determined to hang on to this belief at this point, isn't there a passage about women being the weaker partner? And I am so glad you asked. And you're right. It's in 1 Peter 3, verse 7. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. So there, they're different and weaker. Well... Let's read the context as we always should. Starting the chapter in verse 1. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that, if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, 
the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. That is the entire passage. And again, fascinating here that in this passage, women are given a role in the coming to holiness of their husbands. If they are in a relationship where their husband does not have the same level of faith in Christ that the women do, that by acting well within that relationship of being devoted to God, maintaining their holiness, they may bring their husband closer to Christ or to him even to begin with. Now, consider, if you will, any person who is instructed to submit to another. I'm not just talking about wives and husbands or women and men, whatever. Any person who is instructed to submit to another who is admonished to win others over through their example and not with words. They may be won over not with words, but by their behavior, the passage says. And let's consider also a society that did not think much of educating women, a society built on war and the dominance of others and the usually physical strength needed to do that, and that women would certainly not be encouraged to lift weights, except maybe their offspring. And then consider the instruction from Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to too much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. So first, from this passage, at least older women apparently were permitted to teach, maybe just only younger women, but still. But notice, too, the end of the passage. The purpose of why younger women should love their husbands and children, be self-controlled and pure, busy at home, kind, subject to or in submission to their husbands, so that no one would malign the word of God. There are times when the expectations of society, the dictates of cultural norms, are not sins. When what society believes is right, even though scripture does not necessarily teach it, it is not inherently sinful. And a Christian's obedience to or acknowledgement of those norms and expectations is not a sin. Many times it is a sin, but again, we can't get into that right now. But from our Titus passage, it seems at least that what the culture expected of women and what Christ expected of women may have been different, but in order for no one to malign the word of God, it was okay for Christian wives to refrain from acting too differently or more independently than their secular counterparts. So given all this, the cultural expectations, the position wives hold in regards to their husbands, are they not, because of all that, put into the position of a weaker partner? Not because of their gender, again, but because of the roles they play in society and within the image of Christ and the church. The wife then submits to and respects her husband not because he is flawless and necessarily worthy of respect, but for the sake of the word of God and the image of the church and Christ. That we submit to Christ and his authority even when we go through suffering and even if we don't understand why he's telling us to do this or that. And we show him respect by not criticizing his ways or what he has done in our lives or denigrating his name or in any way representing him to others in a way that might bring him ridicule. That may require a lot of forgiveness and seeking for the good points in your husband 
The silver linings, sympathizing with the motives and intentions, even if the results are not yet holy and blameless, but desiring above all that the dream becomes the reality. A husband who becomes more and more Christ-like every day helps everybody win. Recognizing that as such, husbands are to live and act with deep, reverent, and I would advise even fearful consideration of the vulnerable position their wives are in and comport themselves in a manner that still gives as much respect to the wife as possible that also does not malign the word of God. And I could exhaust myself in railing against the severe injustices husbands have wreaked upon their wives, resulting in absolute hate of Christianity and what the world now believes the word of God teaches and has as its goal the holy, radiant, unblemished, and blameless life of their wife just as Christ does for the church. To have a hope of doing this well, oftentimes we'll need to step into the other's shoes to see the world from a new perspective, one we're not accustomed to or familiar with. This ability or this act is at the heart of every writer of every good book. It's been said, write what you know. I might reverse that and say, know what you write. As an author, I can't have my books populated only with young to middle-aged white American men, even though that's what I know. Rather, I need to know at least something about other genders, races, and disabilities so that I can write a more realistic and sympathetic story. When I mentioned a few weeks ago that this topic was upcoming, I noted that there was a lot of information out there about it, and that's true. There are YouTube series, podcasts, blogs, and Twitter threads all about particular aspects of this idea. And I, too, am still learning very much about it. So rather than attempting to offer some new and possibly obscure insight, instead I thought we'd focus primarily on writing different genders. Although, as we'll see, many of the principles around writing genders applies to everything else. And I'm just going to give kind of an introduction, recognizing especially that many of my listeners are not writers, so this topic might actually be completely new to them. When discussing writing genders, much as it does with gender roles in Christianity, the talk seems to focus a lot on men writing women. There are several probably very good reasons for this. For much of history, there have been more male authors than female, so a lot of mistakes went unchecked, and to this day, a lot of books still retain those mistakes. Second, because the male has dominated for so long, and his story told from his perspective, women have nearly unlimited opportunity of understanding the world through men's eyes. The reverse is sadly less true. So for a woman to write a male character is not difficult. It does still happen, but it is less difficult. A possible third reason that I would suggest is that for the male to engage in any sort of feminine, quote-unquote, is to make himself less male, which is often highly discouraged among his peers. Because of the women's rights and feminist movements, however, women engaging in many sorts of traditional, quote-unquote, masculine is considered empowering and is possibly even highly encouraged among her peers. This can afford her first-hand experience with things that may be considered male and enable her to learn what she needs to know to write a male character, where again, for men, this is sadly less true. As I do in so many of my podcasts, I recommend Brandon Sanderson's BYU lecture on this topic, and we're going to pull in a theory that I learned from him. It's not his theory, it is actually feminist theory, but it's helpful. I'm not going to pull this in verbatim, so it's still worth watching the episode. I'll provide the link and the starting time for this particular topic in his lecture in the description below. Essentially, there are a couple levels of sexism that happens to almost all writers unless they become aware of it before they start writing. The first level that Sanderson discusses is women as object. I fell into this one quite a bit 
in my younger days and still occasionally catch myself falling into the one aspect of this problem. The concept is that we tend to default to ourselves when we write, meaning for men, any unimportant character, say you need a worker of some sort or just random people on the street, maybe with some dialogue as your characters are looking for a place to stay for the night, will default to being a man. And this is what I still catch myself doing occasionally. I did have to consciously change a baker in book three from a man to a woman just because there were too many men everywhere. So in this first level, women are rare if they even exist in the book, and they generally don't do anything to serve the plot except to help men get to where they're trying to go. This can happen in sometimes subtle ways. I recall reading a particular book where it appeared that the female character was well-written. She was a point-of-view character, which can help. She had her own motivations and storyline, all good things. But when you looked at the story as a whole, from beginning to end, it was primarily about the male lead. Not wrong in and of itself, except that the woman's death ended up helping the man overcome a past trauma, which is massively problematic. Never, ever, ever kill a character, especially a female, for the sole purpose of growing a male character. Now, why do I say especially a female? And isn't sacrifice at the heart of Christ? It is. The problem is that until fairly recently, the story has been that women exist for the sole purpose of serving men, and this is not true and is very damaging. Our sole purpose, male and female, is relationship with God and with all others. So I say especially female because we have a road ahead of us of making up for a long history of wrong, a long history of misrepresentation and debilitating lies that we need to correct as soon as possible. The second level that happens is what's called the Paragon. In order to make up for having flat and pointless characters, we create one perfect example of a character, but one that is ultimately still flat. Maybe they impact the plot now and have their own motivations, but they have no flaws. We fear offending the other, so we create a perfect character. Now, this is still sexist because it still doesn't address our ignorance of the other. It's an easy way out and doesn't help us or our readers sympathize with and relate to real human beings. Level three is what Sanderson called paragon number two. Now, there may be multiple examples of the other, but they still don't really have flaws and often are some sort of authority figure. So they're still rather flat and there is still no real recognition or replication of the real world we see populated with real people. Level four is when you finally have a fully realized and fleshed out other complete with flaws and character traits and foibles and dreams and passions, but there's only one. This is the problem in a large part with By Ways Unseen, I will admit. I was able to toss in Halton and Chloe later on and a bit of Felice, Fiora, and Mary, but Sarah is the only female character who is truly and fully fleshed out. I have a lot of named male characters with dialogue and then women and children. Now, this doesn't mean every book you write has to have multiple point of view other characters. So I might be being a little bit too hard on myself. And actually, I have a good number of dialoguing female characters. I haven't asked a feminist yet, though, what she thinks of my book. The nice thing about my series is that by book two, we now have two fully fleshed out female characters and a bunch of other female characters with dialogue and very different personalities who are not perfect. The point more so in all of this is that ignoring the other does not become a theme. That book after book is constantly and consistently populated by copies of the self with only begrudging inclusion of occasional and unrealistic others. This brings us to level five, which is the ideal. That every character is thought out, has their own agency, is a fair or at least realistic representation of any real life counterpart, and there are a fair number of them throughout the book. What's fascinating about this level is that it's basically just good writing. Flat, 
poorly thought out, stereotypical characters are always bad. Characters who exist solely to serve a plot seem to not be motivated to do anything except what the main character needs them to do at a certain time and have no sense of depth or reality are always just bad characters, male, female, or whatever. Same with races, religions, and cultures, regardless of what gender, race, religion, or culture the writer is from. One final comment as well, as this applies particularly to characters with disabilities, but can also apply to all the others we also just mentioned. It is generally in poor taste to make the primary purpose and goal of the other to become not other, as though being other is somehow wrong and needs to be fixed. This does not mean the characters shouldn't change. Of course, they should. And particularly in regards to religion, a character can move from atheism to theism or the reverse. But if that is the only goal of that character and the only reason for their existence, it can be far too easy to fall into the trap of representing them badly. Perhaps as Christians, we can identify with movies or books that have that token Christian who's an idiot, who makes really bad arguments or just acts despicably and seems to exist solely to reassert everyone else's belief that science and atheism is the only real way to live. Atheists, or even just your run-of-the-mill non-believers, can similarly feel put off when their ideas, beliefs, or motivations are taken lightly, stereotyped, badly represented, and all for the sake of a nice conversion story to make Christians feel better about their faith. At the end of the day, all of this, for writers and as Christians, is about acknowledging, respecting, and caring about people other than ourselves realizing they do not exist solely for the purpose of our own character growth. Learn and grow in this, and I believe you will do well. That's all for now, folks. Join me again next week as we take a look at salvation with a certain amount of fear and trembling and at creating villains in our stories. Until then, keep the faith and keep writing. Keep writing.